Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This episode is the edited version of a live session from the Jaipur Literature Festival 2021. Trump it up, the era of neo-nationalism. Homi ke bhava in conversation with Sanjoy K. Roy. Welcome, Professor Homi Baba. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this continued conversation uh, that we've been having on the Jaipur Literature Festival platform, looking at issues of nationalism, rights, uh, human beings, human rights, and so much more. I'm going to first ask you to, uh, as agreed, that you will provide us with your thoughts on what we've seen in America in the past few months. Homi, Professor Baba, over to you. Thank you, Sanjoy, and I want to thank the Jaipur team. Uh, it's very different being in Cambridge and speaking to Jaipur and sp then speaking from Jaipur, but I hope we will be able to do that before too long. <clears throat> President Biden's inaugural address made frequent references to the fragility of democracy. In his first presidential town hall with CNN's Anderson Cooper, Five weeks later, Biden returned to the subject of democratic fragility. In the time between these two warnings of the perilous state of democratic institutions and values, all Americans and most of the rest of the world witnessed the violent on January the 6th in Washington, D.C. Now, is the fragility of democracy any different from our ongoing apprehensions about the fate of democracy or what we call the future of democracy? Does the phrase democratic fragility strike a different note of alarm? I believe it does. The value of words lies in using them carefully and reading them cautiously. The future of democracy anticipates the next chapter in the democratic experiment, however dark and difficult it may be. The fragility of democracy, on the other hand, I believe, expresses the anxiety that democracy may have lost the plot, as we put it, in the present moment. There may well be another chapter, but we don't quite know how to write it. The democratic victory in the 2020 elections may well turn the page. But what is the plot of the story now? With over 74 million Americans voting for Trump and over 100 congressmen refusing to endorse the election in the very wake of the violent ransacking of the Capitol in Washington, the plot against American democracy is far from over. Well into this February, three quarters of Republican voters still believe the lie that the election was stolen. It is no wonder 
that Biden chooses his words cautiously when he speaks repeatedly of the fragility of democracy as a real and present danger. Now, the United States is by no means the only country vulnerable to democratic fragility. The insurrection of the capital is an instructive symptom of fragile democracy worldwide in authoritarian regimes on a global scale. To learn that lesson, consider for a moment the Make America Great Again monument erected by the insurrectionists across from the Capitol. What was that monument? The insurrectionist built a towering gallows with a dangling noose ready to lynch the American elections and placed it in the face of the Capitol. The hanging gallows were part of the theater of mob protest, accompanied by chants of hang them and stop the steal. But the lesson of this piece of political theater, and there is always political theater, is clear. The Make American Great Again gallows, as I call it, that installation of insurrection casts a shadow of death across the face of the capital and the democratic values it is meant to represent. On February the 6th, the hanging gallows, as you know, were meant for Democrats and Republican never Trumpers to say nothing of the vice president. On that day, the American Constitution almost got it in the neck. However, the lynching gallows immediately brings to my mind's eye another part of American and world history. In America, it brings to me the specter of American racialized death, death by lynching, death by slavery, death by police chokeholds for blacks. After all, the gallows and the noose, like many American trees in the South, were the instruments of death for black people. And indeed, the same is true if we think about the gallows as a symbol of the death by genocide for Native Americans going back hundreds of years. This, I believe, is the American nightmare from which the American dream never fully wakes. And why we see the death of democracy played out on that February 6th, sorry, on January 6th, as we see the phantasmagoric opposition to the elections, we must also remember that the violence visited upon black and ethnic bodies by white supremacists over decades is now turning itself on the American body politic. The racial barbarism that territorizes the lives of black and ethnic citizens within democracy now terrorizes electoral democracy itself. The shadow of death does not enter the corridors of power uninvited. 
internal terrorists and political vigilantes across the world, mobs, gangs, insurrectionists, enter the public domain when truth is in peril. When a political system suffocates the people's right to speak truth to power in any number of legal ways by alleging that dissent is sedition and protest is anti-national, then the checks and balances of representative democracy are threatened by dogmatism and demagoguery. The fragility of democracy is dangerously exposed and democratic dialogue becomes mired in alternative truths and conspiracy theories. Timothy Snyder, the most prescient commentator on tyranny, whether it emerges in fascist states or democratic nations, Timothy Snyder, the professor of history at Yale, considers the post-truth condition as a grievous malady of democratic fragility. Snyder writes, post-truth is pre-fascism. When we give up on truth, we concede power to those with the wealth and charisma to create spectacle in its place. Without agreement about some basic facts, citizens cannot form the civil society that would allow them to defend themselves. A joint statement, he goes on, by Ted Cruz, issued about the senator's challenge to the vote, nicely captured the post-truth aspect of the whole. It never alleged that there was fraud, only that there were allegations of fraud, allegations of allegations of allegations all the way. And I ask you to remember this phrase, allegations of fraud, not fraud. Post-truth has defined the unjust and precarious world occupied by minorities for centuries the world over. And when we think of the threat to democracy by, uh, by, represented by conspiracy theories and allegations and post-truth, let us not forget that racialized, ethnicized minorities have lived the life of post-truth for longer than we care to remember. Minorities are excluded, discriminated, vilified and criminalized on the grounds of nothing more, very often, than allegations of allegations of allegations all the way. They are violated and denigrated, not for what they do, but for who they are. Allegations referring to skin color, allegations connected to caste status, allegations relating to religious belief, allegations associated with deferring political views, allegations aimed at gender identities and sexual preferences. Require no proof so long as those who make them are protected by post-truth power and enforced by post-truth policies. The gallows erected at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. on January the 6th, I submit,
serves as a warning that if we do not urgently muster our will to democratic freedoms and to the equality of minority populations and dissent, then the fragility of democracy might well be a prelude to its fatality. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Bhabha. And there is uh, just so much to unpack in what you have said. I'm going to go straight off to ask you uh, about some of what you've contended. Before that, can you, for our audiences, just make the difference between what you talk about as post-truth and how you differentiate that from alternative truth that you write about? Alternative truth is a very slippery concept, but it assumes that there is another set of truths out there to which it is providing an alternative. Now, normally we know that facts can be contested, data can be queried. So normally we assume that there are alternative readings or interpretations. So alternative truth works in that area, although when it is empowered by leaders and Democrats, that alternative truth starts becoming a new form of truth or what we might call post-truth. It is not simply saying is in any pluralist democratic uh, society, that there are several versions of the truth, let us discuss them. Now, when alternative truths are put forward at a time when there is a real problem about what the common good is, where there is no, uh, problem, there is no proper uh, mechanism even in place for saying we're in different political parties, different views, but there is a common game that we're playing. When the common good falls out of the way, alternative facts and alternative truths are in serious danger of not just being interpretational free discussion of differences. They're in danger of becoming or entering this realm of the non-truth. So, so homie, uh, the post-truth. Through history, we've seen that the demagogue, demagogue has always sort of relied on selling his version of his truth, whether it's Hitler or Franco or whoever it is, that they've all, like Trump, been elected. I think what has surprised certainly people like us sitting many thousands of kilometers away from you is that despite everything, despite the very same Congress uh, uh, men and women being elected on the very same way as President Biden was, you still had a hundred of them denounce the fact that this election was fair and, uh, and, and proper in terms of precedent. And this, uh, what you say, the alternative truth, which now has come to be seen as post-truth, has come to be the narrative. And as you, as you have referred to in your note, 74 or 75 million people still believe that the election was stolen. So how, how does this happen? I mean, history continues to repeat itself. What is it that it is that these people are able to sell 
for people like you and me to buy into this alternative food? What are the basis or what's the foundations on which this, is, this operates? Well, this is a very large question to unpack. But first of all, let me say what it shows up dramatically is that democracy, democratic formalism, right, on which we depend, we depend on democratic procedure. People go and vote in the place. They go and put a postal ballot. Democratic procedures are not enough for democracy to survive. Its fragility and its future, democratic procedures are only one step of the way. What we actually need are deep commitments to democratic values. So I think that's the first problem, that this is not a problem simply of formalism or institutions that are important, but that cannot be the only answer here. The second thing, <clears throat> Sanjoy, and I think here we should be very modest, is that you said, what is it that allows you and me to believe, to buy into these ideas? Now, the fact is, that you and I don't buy into these ideas. And I'm not saying that is a form of elitism or setting us apart as holier than thou, not at all. I'm saying that to suggest that I believe profoundly that there has been a massive failure in education for citizenship. We may produce great uh, scientists, we may produce great technical engineers, we may produce software geniuses, we may produce great businessmen, but education for citizenship, which is what generally the liberal arts and the humanities nourish, the notion that whatever knowledge you have, it carries values, knowledge is related to power, that when we want, when we receive knowledge, we have to be educated to be able to be critically, to be able to, to deal with it, to sift the chaff from the wheat. I'm suggesting to you that there is no easy political fix to this. The fix to this is to think of education for civil society, as Timothy Snyder suggests, education based on values, not simply on outcomes. Professor Bhama, let, let me take that argument back to you. You're talking about education. Again, going back to history, hasn't philosophers and thinkers always been at risk? I mean, it's not today, whether it's all the time from the Greeks to Socrates and Plato and so on and so forth. Even today, have you and people like me who are supposed to be part of the thinking uh, 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 part of society, have we failed to communicate our ideas of what we think is a liberal society to these people who've turned back and said, your society is useless. We want somebody like, like Trump because of X or Y or Z reason, or Erdogan, or Ping or Putin, or Duterte, or, or whoever across the world. And also the second part of the question is that perhaps again, looking back into the history, are we as human beings, as society, easier when we have a strong ruler with that sense of kinship, where we gather around a particular person and his or her charismatic ideas, good or bad? 
Well, Sanjoy, <clears throat> first of all, you're absolutely right to suggest that many people of great learning bowed to fascism. One of the greatest philosophers of our time, Heidegger, one of the great philosophers, invoked more and more now uh, in the realm of climate change, no less, and in many other ways. They did bow to it. They did bow to it. And again, here comes the corruption of power. They bowed to it, not only to save their skins, but they bowed to it, and there are many others, because they felt empowered, and they, in a way, exceeded their philosophical learning or their philosophical teaching to think that they could shape a whole world where they only understood very superficially what the power, uh, power would be, what the power structures would be. That's why many great, uh, you know, there, there is a, the great arrogance of learning also. People who feel that they are so philosophically uh, uh, sophisticated that somehow in these moments, they can make a intellectual grab for power. And I think that there was a lot of that. I mean, Wagner also sympathized with, uh, uh, with authoritarianism. And this can come because you feel that your work can speak suddenly to a world in change. And that's my reading of it. And I think therefore you're absolutely right to say that the most unexpected people have followed the drumbeat of fascism and dogmatism. So that's my first uh, issue. The, the second uh, point is to think it's not that we have not been able to communicate uh, great values or great virtues from our position. I'm arguing the other way around, that I think even we are vulnerable not to think about, to think about education as expertise and outcomes and success and not to think about education as education for civil society and education for the notion of human well-being, whether you're a citizen or you're a resident or a migrant. I'm saying, and you can see this on a, a world historical level, there has been a devaluation of humanistic education. And I'm saying that amongst ourselves, amongst the elites, even amongst the elites, there is a, often a huge deficit for humanistic education in the service of society, in the service of humanity. I put that, lay that down to you. When you have this deficit, let me just put it, when you have this deficit of a kind of humanitarian, ethical, aesthetic, political uh, education, then at that level, you create notions, deeply unequal and unjust notions of what is success, measured by your bank book, measured by the home you have, measured by the clubs you belong to, measured by where your children can go or not go. And that lack of an understanding across society, from the elites right down to the working class, that lack of commitment, that deficit, of education for civil society, for civil social justice, that then creates a sense of, a sense of ressentiment, resentment and anger. And that anger is in many ways justified. 
The problem with that anger, it seems to me, is that it can lead to conspiracy theories and non-truth theories or post-truth uh, ideas, which are often manipulated by those very leaders, in the case of certainly of Trump, leaders who have always belonged to the class of the privilege, leaders who have gamed the system, leaders who have been um, uh, openly uh, alleged their allegations of fraud, allegations of lying. So it seems to me that these leaders are not only, I, I, are not charismatic. These are miasmatic leaders. These are leaders of not charisma, but of miasma producing fog, fog around themselves as, um, as, as aura. And these leaders are very difficult actually to hold, get hold of. And in because of that, you can identify and project on them whatever you need. Think about that phrase, allegations against allegations, allegations all the way down. Think of Trump's most charismatic statements. These are not, these are not kind of statements of clear direction. Trump's typical rhetoric is, some people say X, I don't know, but people are saying X, and these people, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know, are good people. Do you see the way in which the rhetoric continually creates a fog of conspiracy, a fog of enmity, leaving himself directly off the hook? So I want to say that these so-called strong leaders rule not by strength, except in their direct actions, but they entrance the people by these foggy weaknesses, ambiguities, which then the disadvantage, those who have not had the advantages of education have to fix, hold on to. I was seeing a CNN report last night where they were interviewing people who said quite clearly that, I, that within a week or two weeks, I can't remember, Trump is going to be brought back and a new cabinet and a new presidency will be announced. <clears throat> I saw 20, last... The 20th of March is the date that they're giving... I, for, oh, yes, and I, and I saw last night a conspiracy theorist say, as you must have seen too, but worth reminding ourselves to Anderson Cooper, yeah, I did call for your... I did call for your execution. I do think these leaders should be executed. What kind of fantasy is that? My last point, when we think now of post-truth, we should not say this is post-truth, that is truth. To understand what's going on, we have to think of public as being the foundation of otherwise rational action. There's a paradox here, a very important paradox. Professor Bhabha, in your, in your great passion, you've sort of drifted to the left of your screen. I need oh. you to center yourself. As I was never a centrist. I never sat on the, I never sat in the middle, but here I am. So, so three, three thoughts to, to what you've said. One is, uh, you know, you talked about elites and uh, in, in going back to history, the Brahmins of, of our time in India and the Brahmins sit, sitting in Cambridge like yourselves. 
Um, I'm a Boston Brahmin, if a Brahmin at all, but I'm a Parsi. Boston, and a, a proud Parsi, and there is no caste system amongst the Parsis. Well, well is, that, that too can be argued. That too there is a class system, not a caste. So even within that, we as intellectuals, one is held on to uh, knowledge and information. And like the Brahmins have that only sort of, you know, because they know that they are the gateway to the other. Has the democratization of this process of allowing for information to get out that we've seen through the social media, which started as a cause for good and continues to be, but is being used in many ways to allow information and knowledge to be used by everybody. Everybody is now in many ways uh, uh, has a voice and most importantly has a voice which is anonymous. Because it doesn't matter whether somebody knows you or me, they're not coming into our drawing rooms or our classrooms uh, to have a conversation which is considered, but they can in their anonymity uh, put out hatred in the way that that swamps the complete narrative. So that's one. The second question is that yesterday in, in a conversation uh, that we were having uh, with Justice Albie Sachs, uh, as you know, who wrote uh, the constitution for the South African uh, 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 for, for South Africa. One of the things he said is that democracy is evolutionary. It will continue to evolve. What is absolutely important are the institutions. And, if, and how do you preserve an institution? By having the best person in the institution in that job. Can it be argued, Homi, that over this past not just the four years, but ever since the advent of the Tea Party movement, you have systematically, as we've seen in India and many parts of the world, we have systematically removed people of knowledge and experience and replaced them by more what you have said, uh, uh, people um, who have a particular point of view, the demagogy of, of that point of view. So is that the second problem that we're looking at? Because when we're looking, when we're looking for a solution in the future, how do we then manage or how do we control uh, this democratization of information and marry that to be able to ensure uh, the robust <laughs> need for institutions, which in its turn will protect democracy? Because obviously, to some extent, as America has shown today, uh, uh, Professor Baba, that democracy can't just be protected by the vote. The vote in itself is being questioned and not being questioned in a country anywhere in the third world or in the far off of Asia or, or Africa. It's being questioned in the very capital of democracy at the Capitol Hill. Um. Two immediate responses, and I'll go back to your substantive questions. Two remarks. One from my own presentation this, this, this morning, my time, evening, yours. I think it must be clear that even democracy in its most evolutionary form has to come to terms with the ongoing injustice, the ongoing allegatory, uh, uh, allegationary uh, uh, post-truth that still 
ties this democracy and has done for, for a long time to injustice towards African-Americans, Native Americans, and many ethnic. So that within democracy, that's why I call it fragile, within democracy, even the most evolutionary democracy, as you put it, even within those systems of democracy, there are these patches, these gaps of justice, and those we, and, and violence, and this is not simply injustice in the courts, this is violence on the streets, we have to deal with this. And I think what we say about this country, it's imperfect democracy and it's, it, it's failings in very specific ways towards, I'm suggesting, dissidents and minorities. I'm not saying it just fails in every way. It fails in many other ways too. This is as true in India or in Turkey. The targeting of certain groups within evolutionary democracy as not being equal and as having different kinds of institutional treatments. I think that, you, you know, whether it's through the police force or whether it's through the ballot box, I think this is something we've got to realize. Part of the evolution of democracy is its own error, is its own blind spots around race, minorities, migrants, dissidents, uh, and so on, gender issues, so on and so forth. So when we talk about the evolution of democracy, it's not an evolved system. It is a system with deep, profound imperfections at the level of who is a citizen and who is not. Who has the rights of citizenship and who doesn't have not just political and social rights, but the rights on the public highway. Who is secure and who is not. So let's not have a rosy picture of a, of a democratic evolution. Let's think about that there have been these huge deficits, as I've called them, and gaps. So that's my first issue. The other point I want to make here is that the social media, the horse has bolted from the stable so far. We have not seen an appropriate and adequate um, uh, uh, regulatory system you know, you take somebody off Twitter in one place and they find another way to be heard in, in another place. So this is a defeat at the moment and this is a huge dilemma at the moment. It seems to me that one has to work on trying to see how one can regulate using the law, using other democratic institutions. But I think you hit on something very significant, which is anonymity. Now, <clears throat> public voice was never supposed to be veiled. There, from that you begin to have allegations unsupported or you begin to have a conspiracy. That, I do not want to individualize it. I'm not saying that every individual simply has to present themselves in the public domain, showing their faces giving their names, but I am saying that normally protest, dissent is associated with an organization, somebody with a leadership, with a structure of representation. You see what I'm saying? There, it's usually opposition is represented. It's a representative organization. Now we have freewheelers who come in and the freedom, the freedom of social media, so vaunted, is not necessarily democratic because the whole nature of representation, if you think about anonymity, 
not being followed. That's one. So who takes responsibility for what you say? The other thing is that democratic it may be in terms of access, but is it so democratic in the fullest sense of democracy at the level of practice? I don't think it is. People get on, go into their own groups or their own cells. They have a huge power of repetition, but only to listen to themselves. So I think when we talk about voice, we have to talk about something which is more intangible, but hugely important, which is the ethics and the equity of structures of listening. We have so emphasized the need to express one's views that we have lost the mechanisms and the morality of learning to listen. And I think that this is, for me, an absolutely important element now because it is only through listening that you can move from information to knowledge because through listening you learn to sift you learn to put yourself in another's place and then look back upon yourself this is not some sentimental sense of identification that i identify with all those who are voiceless no you go there you listen and you come back and think about your own position and how it might change. This whole dialectics of listening is institutionally now trumped by the dialectics of you know, being free to say and express whatever you like. Also here, my dear um, uh, Sanjoy, let's think that many of our leaders in the world will not speak in a measured and regulated way. They will either keep silent or they will only address large crowds. Press conferences based on listening and actually responding to specific problems are out the door nowadays. Press conferences are only places where policy or positions or defensiveness or defenses are made. And then that's all. It's partisan, defense made, position, and then retraction or utter rudeness. We will not take this question. Censorship. So I really think that there are many practices of this kind that need to be thought about before we get a, you know, a regime of regulation. Let me just say that the last trip I took around these very days last year before COVID was in to Cape Town. And when I was there, I met with Albie Sachs and hanging on my wall here is a, an, a, a, a version, you know, blown up version of the constitution, which he signed for me. So when you mention it, I think about him. Albie, if you're listening, uh, all the very best. You know, there's, there's a lot that I would want to challenge you uh, to, uh, Professor Baba, because you really unpacked a lot of stuff. But unfortunately, we are hurtling as usual to the end. There's so much more to talk about, especially in terms of, I wanted to ask you really about uh, the whole issue of going back to elitism. Is that one of the issues that we're looking at? Uh, is the sense of meritocracy that only the people who are able to succeed are successful? Everybody is not. And is that the basis 
And I'm going to give, go straight into questions because we have uh, not more than four or five minutes left. And I'm going to club the questions uh, and hold our conversation for a later moment. Emma asks of you, Professor Bhava, if one is to assume history works in a cyclic motion, isn't this swing towards the right-wing politics just that? And can one assume that this wave shall settle as well? And Zara asked, do you think that, do you think that the fire Trump stoked was just him bringing up issues that were brewing amongst a certain population? Did he simply provide a ground for this resentment to fester? Does that imply that this problem forms well before Trump? Well, you know, there are many theories about how history works. There is a linear theory that you go from A to Z, which is called the teleological theory. There's a cyclical theory. Um, I think it all depends on where you stand on this. Um, you know, if we, we, I think the, the, it could be cyclical. I'm sure that this moment will change. We know that with the Biden election, something has changed. There has been a, co uh, a coalescence now between the popular vote and the college vote. This is more than we've seen for a long time. So things do change. Cycles do break. Um, you don't have to believe in his in in the in the cyclical theory of history to see that. I think what you what you do see is the ways in which demography changes, populations change, uh, effectivity of, uh, of political education changes. I think there are many things that happen. So I would not want to lay my bet on a theory of cyclical history or a theory of linear history. I, I do lay my bet on the fact, in a way, that progress is much more contingent and unpredictable. And in order to effect that kind of change, we have to work at all kinds of levels. And I think that's what happened. Georgia flipped this time. Georgia flipped because of Stacey Abrahams has been working relentlessly to increase the fund of knowledge and, in and bring in the black voters who are not voting. And, so not, I think just, many not, and not just the American Georgia um, uh, uh, Professor Baba, but even uh, the uh, the Georgia, uh, which used to be part of the United, uh, you know, uh, the USSR. The That's right. But at the moment, I have the American Georgia on my mind, as the song has it. So that's as so I just mentioned. Baba, I'm, going to ask, I'm going to ask you to add one other uh, 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 point to this because we've got two minutes left. Uh, to the point about um, uh, Trump, please also look at. Amir asks, how does American ex exceptionalism and patriotism shape mindsets leading to the rise of populism? And how do you well, think we stop? We've got, we, we, in, in two minutes, I can do justice to nobody. But let me say, yes, of course, there, are, there have been major shifts of populations between the Democrats and uh, the, the, the Republicans. Why did two-term... Uh, Democrats voting for Obama, a man of color, then shift to Trump. I think this has got to do very much with economic circumstances. I want to take up here the question, yes, meritocracy is a real problem, but I think the, the, the problem that, that precedes it, which I've argued for, is an education of educational equity based on the education for citizenship, not simply outcomes and profit and the market. So I think that 
To deal with it only at the level of meritocracy is actually to deal with the symptom rather than the cause. That's my response to Sanjoy. I also think that American exceptionalism has been, you know, um, um, it, it would be good if it were true, but unfortunately it is not true. And I think before we talk about any American, um, ex uh, uh, you know, before we talk about exceptionalism, we have to talk about the role internally and externally that America has played. Uh, is the role of the exclusion of populations where your citizens, and I'm sorry to keep harping back at it, but I see this as a kind of watermark of the situation. Does that make you an exceptionalist power? You are an exceptionalist power uh, and, and, you, and you create a world hegemony based on the fact that your, ex your view of your exceptionalism does not include the exclusions, the inequalities of that are the inbuilt deficits of American democracy. So I think that this idea of exceptionalism can only be seen, in my view, as can only be qualified and has to be put in its place to see what it has done. And not only internally, but what it has done externally, because very often American exceptionalism in foreign policy is a, a, a seduce and abandon a project. We need and we're seeing, we're seeing an effect. We're seeing the knockdown effect as we speak on Myanmar. Professor Baba, as usual, just as we've got into this conversation and we're, we're on a roll, so to speak, we're having to uh, stop the conversation, look forward to continuing this in our ongoing series. Always a pleasure to have you on the Jaipur Literature Festival platform and, and unpack uh, your mind and all the vast knowledge you have. Thank you for being here. Uh, back to our colleagues at the Jaipur Literature Festival. Thank you. Thank you to the audience. Thank you, Sanjoy. Thank you to our colleagues. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please subscribe or follow to this show wherever you're listening to this.